everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we're looking back at this week's Champions League action. To do so, I am joined by two wonderful gentlemen. Ryan Bailey is not going to be with us, but instead, up first is a man who, much like Ronald Koeman, is holding out to someday be paid 12 million euros. It's Graham <laughs> Ruffin. Hi, Graham. <laughs> I mean, yes, I am holding out for that day. Uh, Ryan Bailey taking another day. I mean, he's definitely got a pasta hangover for anyone who saw oh, yeah. his tweet from last night. Either that or it was the um, the alcoholic iron brews or Aperol Spritz, <laughs> as they call them in Apple Italy. Spritz. You're not fooling what? anyone, Italy. What is a Spritz? Yeah, Ryan was very proud of, of that order, and I still don't know what that is. So I have had Aperol Spritz, and I'm not entirely sure what it is. I there mean, it's like a kind of fruity... I mean, it is not too dissimilar from Iron Brew. Italy are pulling the wool over our eyes. Well, uh, I'm assuming Ronald Koeman has had a cocktail or two since being sacked. That was what my introduction was alluding to. Uh, I think he is due 12 million euros as a payout. That's a lot of spritzes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Graham, if you won't take the 12 million, if you can't get the 12 million, will you accept the two payments totaling 7.5 million euros that uh, Koeman is now being offered? Uh, yeah, let me think. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. I'll accept that still. Okay, cool. Thanks, I'm glad. I'm glad. All right, sweet. Uh, well, just go to uh, Laporte for that one and Barcelona. I'm sure they'll pass that check right along. While Graham does that, I will also introduce Joe Lowry, a fellow who I'm assuming is ready to fight Angel Di Maria for having the audacity to be unkind to Tyler Adams. Joe, how are you feeling about that? I have my boxing gloves on. I'm Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, Taylor. I'm finding it slightly hard to be passionate about this issue when Graham just got 7.5 million euros and all I get to do is fight Angel Di Maria, who would probably beat me in a fight. Um, so I, I guess I'll defend Tyler Adams' honor, but I'm not going to lie. I'm a little disappointed. But Graham has to go get it from Barcelona. If you fight Angel <laughs> Di Maria, I feel true. like then you could sue him. Maybe you get a, a payment there. And I think it all works out. So I, I think overall, yeah. the, the key thing here is both of you... Go out and hustle for a million. For yeah, a million. Joe, I'm just I'm just spending the rest of my life outside the camp now. That's that's what <laughs> my future holds. That's what Taylor has has uh, condemned me to. It's a really it's, good point. I don't feel so bad anymore, guys. Thank you. I'm now picturing a like a a small tent community outside of the camp new for all of the Barcelona <laughs> managers and players who have like not been paid or been asked to take pay cuts, and similarly uh, one outside of. Uh, Tottenham Stadium, where you have all of their former managers just hanging out. Yeah. I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, one can no go coinc- to one, one can go to the other. It's no coincidence that uh, Ernesto Valverde, Kike Setien, they've not been seen since nope. that. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all camped outside, exactly. waiting for their payoff. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we are going to take a look at the Champions League uh, that happened this week. We're going to start with Group A, Manchester City on top after their 4-1 win over Brugge, or Bruges, still not sure. PSG in second and had to battle for their 2-2 draw with Leipzig. Let's start there. Joe, uh, what, which team do you think, broadly speaking, is happier with that result? I think PSG is happier with that result. Taylor, Leipzig really needed points in this game. And sure, they got one point, but three would have been a lot better. They're at the bottom of this group. And I thought they outplayed PSG for large stretches of this game. And yes, this sounds very similar to the conversation we had (laughs) on match day three, which had a very similar feeling where Leipzig were better in a lot of respects. And PSG managed to get those individual moments and score goals. It's a similar pattern in this game, except I think Leipzig were even better in this game than they were on match day three. Fewer 
individual errors, at least in the first half of this game, they were really, really good. Carving through PSG from the start, they took full advantage of the lack of defensive effort from PSG's front three in that in that 4-3-3 from Mauricio Pochettino. They were all over PSG at the start of this game, and even for stretches later on in the first half and in the second half, man, I, I think PSG has to feel pretty good coming out of this game with a point. Graham, I'm assuming you were as impressed by Leipzig's start to this game or Leipzig's performance overall. Uh, what did you make of them, or more specifically, Nkuku in this game? Yeah, I, th- I thought Nkuku was was fantastic. Obviously, he he scores the the first goal in this match pretty early on. He gets across his man, flicks in a header, and he's a player who has when I've watched them this season, seems to have added a different dimension to his game. So obviously, he's been a key player for Leipzig for a couple of seasons now, but previously he was very much the assists master for them. That was where he got a lot of numbers. Now he he seems to have, he seems to be getting himself into more goal-scoring positions. And he's he's had to do that because obviously Leipzig have, uh, have sold a number of their best attackers in recent seasons, uh, one of whom is now sitting on the Bayern Munich bench. Uh, and so other players have had to step up and it's not really what I know. Um, you know, Andre Silva, he, he brings something to this, to this Leipzig team, but I'm, I'm still not totally convinced by him. A slightly contradictory thing about this Leipzig performance was as, w- as well as they started this match, they could have been 2-0 up. Obviously, Silva misses that penalty. And in that moment, you feel, you already feel like that's a key moment, even though Leipzig were well on top in the, in that game. But as well as they started the match, I actually felt that it was towards the end of the second half where that when um who is it that comes who is it that comes on it's uh, Yusuf Poulsen who comes on for Silva and Sobosly comes on for Forsberg and that front three of Sobosly Poulsen and uh, and Cuckoo, that really seems like a, an attacking hub for Jesse Marsh to build around and that that those three really I thought they were playing well with each other there was a good link between the midfield and attack at that point of the match so I, I would it would have been interesting to see how different things might have been if those three had started the match and I know that that's a bit of a paradox because Leipzig actually did start the match really well but I just like that balance that they finished with that's really interesting because Silva uh like having to spend what they did to bring him in for the new manager coming in, there's always that idea that like he needs to play the new player to show that he's you know like you know do, doing what's asked of him. He's not going back to playing like some academy player instead of the the multi million dollar player. But then you have Paulson come on, you have Sobosly come on, who they obviously spent money on as well. But they do look a little bit more confident, a little bit more fluid, and I think they just have that Paulson strength that you kind of have to yeah. uh, account for. Yeah, and, and Paulson is just a player who for me gets better out of others around him and that is really important for this Leipzig team and when he's on the pitch the focus it kind of the goal scoring focus shifts slightly so when Silva starts it's, he's very much the front man and I know and Kuku helps him out with everything I've just said but Silva's still the a traditional number nine in the way that Leipzig don't really play whereas Poulsen is more in, the, in their image and then the goal scoring onus is on Sobosly and um, and then Kuku and that, that just feels more apt for this Leipzig team so I'm, I'm, I think we said a number of weeks ago that I would be surprised if Poulsen didn't start more games as the season went on, and that really hasn't happened. Silva's is still playing from the start, so I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more from Marsh um, on why that, why that is the case. Joe, uh, Graham mentioned Leipzig having to sell on some of their best attackers. Uh, that is also the case for their defense. They lost both of their starting center backs from last season, but it seemed like they're uh, making some progress on that front this season. I, I certainly think so, and maybe... Let me back up. This game is the perfect game for a center back. When you're playing against PSG, at least when your team has the ball, 
you know there's going to be green grass in front of you. Defending against PSG in transition is a completely different matter, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in just a minute. It's pretty much impossible to do. And so, you know, Simicon and, and Guardiola and, and Mukiele for the first stretch of this game, they have my sympathy for that particular task. But with the ball, man, when you play PSG and with the personnel that Leipzig have in their back line, they started in back three in this game, they were excellent at driving forward and breaking that first line for PSG, breaking past the front line, driving into midfield to initiate a transition attack or to initiate a possession attack. Simicon and, and Guardiol, who are the center center back and left center back for Jesse Marsh respectively, they were really excellent in this game at getting on the ball and carrying it forward and progressing play and cueing those moments for Leipzig to really go. I think those players are so important to Jesse March and Simicon in particular. They're both young players, but Simicon in particular is vulnerable and will make a mistake and do a little bit too much on the ball. To an extent, you kind of have to take that with the good. You have to take the bad with the good from Simicon because in a game like this, you can see just how important they are. Of course, there is a PSG side where if you have a front three of Mbappe, Neymar, and Di Maria like Pochettino used in this game, and you can toss Messi in there too in another game, and it's going to be the same result. Those players really don't do much defending in that front line, which causes PSG all sorts of problems. It also benefits them in certain ways. So it's trade-offs everywhere, and Leipzig, I thought, did a good job of taking advantage of one of PSG's biggest weaknesses with their center-back personnel. Did anyone see the clip of Neymar? So PSG are. It seems like they're quite. Um, they're quite compact. They're not really. They're not pressing high. They're staying compact, asking RB Leipzig to play through them. And in, in the middle of of that shape, Neymar just decides he's going to uh, kneel down and tie his shoelace. <laughs> yeah. Did anyone see that? And then Leipzig, Leipzig are like, well, okay, we're going to take this route through the middle of your team. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) It just uh, kind of sums up this PSG team at the moment a little bit. It's almost comical, Graham. Like moments like that are, are, are on the extreme side for sure, but they happen a bunch of times every single game. And the crazy thing is PSG are so, so good with the ball. They're not at their peak right now. I think Poch could be doing more with this team in terms of structuring how they defend and, and setting them up to absorb pressure a little bit better. But man, PSG can actually just give up in that front line and not have to do a whole lot (laughs) and still get a result. They were not the better team in this game, I would argue, and they could have been down 2-0, like we mentioned, inside the first 15 minutes. And we'd probably be talking about them a little bit differently, PSG. But oh my word, the talent they have to still essentially just take a break in one phase of the game and attack and cause problems for the other team in another phase of the game is ridiculous. Joe, you said Poch could be doing more uh, with this team. Uh, and I'm sure you're talking about like the tactics, but it, it, it begs the question for me that I, I have in my notes multiple times from this game and others is basically like, how do you tell Messi what to do if you are his manager? Like, like, and I know there is, there is, all of these people are famous, all of these people are celebrities, and all of these people are renowned for their footballing ability or their coaching ability. But to have Lionel Messi come in, I, I cannot fathom trying to get him to play in a system and trying to get him to do things he doesn't want to do. And not trying to paint him as the villain or anything. It's just that when he has the level of fame and success that he has and has had, I don't know how you sort of come in and treat him like any other player and try to get him to press and counter press. It it feels like you sort of have to account for Messi doing what Messi wants to do almost. You do. And I would argue the same thing goes for Neymar, certainly, and, and probably for Mbappe as well, Taylor. These are players that have very defined skill sets and are elite in every sense of that term. They're phenomenal players, but I would be shocked, like you're saying, if they are extremely receptive or overly receptive to instruction. And so if you're Poch, 
you you probably know that when you're taking the PSG job, right? You don't know that necessarily you're going to sign Messi, which complicates things a little bit more. But even in a game like this where we don't see Messi at all on the field, you still see those problems. You can see, okay, if this is Liverpool and it's it's Mane and Salah and Firmino or Diogo Jota up top, those guys are, are going to press. They're going to buy in under Klopp. I think these players that PSG has in their front line, maybe Angel Di Maria aside, they're a level above that in a sense. And, and you don't really expect them to buy in. And maybe you can get them to buy in, maybe you can't. But odds are they're going to do their thing. And so what I, I think what Poch can improve is how he structures the group behind them, right? How are they able, how are they able to apply pressure to the ball in midfield? How are they able to absorb pressure when the opposing team's center backs are driving forward? How can they avoid getting carved up like they did in the first 30 minutes of this game? And, and to be fair, we did see some improvement from PSG. The first big, one of the first big chances they have comes in the 38th minute. It's a super dangerous counterattack that starts with Mbappe winning the ball deep back on the right side for PSG, playing it up to Neymar. Neymar then plays it up to Wijnaldum, who plays it over to Di Maria, who hits a volley that goes out for a corner. Two minutes later, that's the goal, or one minute later, that's the goal that Wijnaldum scores off the corner that goes to VAR after the Marquinhos header that, that Wijnaldum puts home. Those chances for PSG do start when they have a slightly more structured defensive block that then they're counterattacking out of. We need to see more of those sequences, or Poch needs to see more of those sequences if he wants to get this team playing at their full ability. Graham, a couple specific moment, uh, moments that I'd like to ask you about, starting with the penalty conceded that Silva uh, missiles, misses, not missiles. Missiles. Uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, bottled into, knocked over, he takes the penalty, saved by Donnarumma. I think he read that the entire time. Yeah. But the penalty itself, Danilo gets a yellow card, and it, it was debated uh, by the commentators when I was watching. I am still a little bit confused because... I know with dog so you're not giving a red card and the penalty except if the player hasn't made a legitimate play on the ball and I would argue Danilo does not do that. I think Danilo yeah. just sort of barges into Silva knowing he's not going to be able to make a play and I think sort of assuming like oh well I'll give a penalty up but at least it's not going to be a red card. I feel like that could have been a red. Yeah and and that was the the kind of first incident in a night of strange refereeing decisions across the board because of course there was the the Hummels red card which I think we'll probably talk about and then there's the Felipe red card um, at Anfield as well those two were I think were slightly were even more contentious but I totally agree like Danilo doesn't for me anyway doesn't make a play on the ball and so yeah that was debated on our coverage as well that that probably should have been a red card and if that is a if that is a red card then that that changes the game completely, particularly for a team like PSG, where they're, they're already sacrificing so much to get those, th- the, well, in this uh, game, it was two attackers, you know. Um, but the, yeah, the, the Danilo's one of the few players that actually gives them some structure. So him going off might have been a problem. And then Silva, as I said, misses the penalty. I did not watch this live, so I knew he was going to miss it when I watched it on the replay. Strange question. I did watch it live, and I knew he was going to miss it. (laughs) Okay, that's my question. That is my question. The the face he's making, there is a world in which that is a very focused, like, nothing can break my concentration. I know exactly what I'm doing. But when you know he misses, I find myself watching that thinking, like, does he look terrified? Because he sort of looks terrified. This is the strange question I have for you, Graham Ruthven. And then, Joe, I welcome your response as well. What is the face you want to see, like your team? If Scotland get a penalty that they have to take, like they have to convert to make the World Cup, what do you want 
whoever, Kieran Tierney's face if he steps up, or Billy Gilmore if he steps up, what should their face look like? Is it calm? Is it relaxed? Is it smiling? Is it that level of focus? Like, what makes you feel like this guy has got this? Well, I mean, you, you obviously want a, a calm expression, but uh, the the line between calm and terrified is quite a thin <laughs> one. So if I, if that were me, maybe I would just like do a big grin, like uh, yeah. to try and put the goalkeeper off in some way. Or John McGinn, you said like a Scotland pennant, like John McGinn has this habit of putting his his um his fingers around his eyes like he's imitating glasses uh he does that quite a a, a weird number of times actually <laughs> so maybe maybe it. like that before he takes the penalty he puts his his he no i've he, never i've never seen him before apparently but i've okay. seen him mid-game do it uh oh, while he's you. making a pass or whatever <laughs> all right joe any thoughts on that one do you want like a, a grinning penalty taken? oh i want a wry smile all day all long right. the confidence that that portrays i i could never and i have never i've taken one penalty in an important game and i was terrified i made it but i was terrified i tried to play it off pretty well i did not have the guts to was pull off the rye smile? It was not, Graham. Good gracious. That would have been incredible, though. Wow. Uh, now I'm just regretting every choice I've ever made. Thank you for that. But I, <laughs> I would like a rye smile from whoever is taking that penalty on the U.S. men's national team. So Joe would like a rye smile. Speaking of smiles, the next random but obvious question. Uh, is it is the friendliness from Donnarumma and Neymar genuine or not? Because oh, no. Donnarumma smiling throughout this game, smiling with the referee, but still having those moments where it's like, me? What? I didn't do anything. And then he goes back to smiling. Neymar the same. Neymar talking to Tyler Adams. He's talking to Sobosly before Sobosly takes the pen. And it seems friendly, but also maybe is some head games. Joe, what do you think? Is, is, there, is there genuine friendliness from those two? It could be friendliness in the run of play, but that penalty specifically, I'm thinking yeah. of Sobosly's penalty. Neymar is is trying to get in his head. There is no way that's a genuine, hey, should we actually <laughs> hang out later? Like, you want to play FIFA or something? There's no chance that's what's happening. I, I read through some of the post-match quotes from this game, and Sobosly said that Neymar was asking him, hey, are you going to score? And Sobosly yeah. said, yes. I am, and Neymar's like, "Are you sure?" And Sobosly said, "I never miss." And I don't know if that's actually what happened or not. We don't, we're, we're not really privy to that information. It definitely for sure. is what happened, that but it feels like I what happened, right? That. And that's not like does. a hey, hey, Hungarian friend, you're going to score this, days. right? Like I, I want it to happen for you. No, it's it's mind games. He was Taylor. he was inviting him to his uh, sister's birthday party in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> I, Joe, I'm so, first of all, I hope it was the, the birthday invite. That would be very yeah, genuinely nice. But second, uh, Joe, I'm really happy that you, you did that reading because I did not, but I've watched that clip over and over and, and it, that's exactly what it seems yeah, like. Cause yeah. he makes that sort of like eyebrow raise, like, you sure? You sure you're going to make it? And, and I, and I thought, I thought he was asking him, which side are you going to go? And then was sort of giving him notes on like, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want to do? Uh, but it's interesting to have that explanation. So thank you for that. So, uh, Graham, do you agree with Joe then that maybe Donnarumma genuine Neymar some gamesmanship? See, I missed the Neymar and Tyler Adams stuff that you're talking about. Okay. What, 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 hap- what happened there? Like, I saw the Donnarumma stuff and the Neymar stuff for the, for the penalty with Sobosly, yeah. but was he just in Tyler Adams' ear the, the whole match? Or? What? No, it's, it's so, so Tyler Adams has the incident with, uh, with Angel Di Maria. Adams picks up a yellow card, is suspended for their next game. And it's basically that, like, Adams is, is doing what Adams does on the defensive side. He's sort of jockeying Angel Di Maria. There's a little bit of physicality to it. There's some back and forth. And Di Maria, I think, feels that he's been fouled. 
fouled. The referee doesn't give the foul. So then Leipzig get possession off of that. The ball goes back to Tyler Adams. And as he's passing the ball, Angel Di Maria comes kind of charging in, gives him a little shoulder. Uh, Tyler Adams reacts by shoving him. Di Maria goes down like he's been shot. And it's the yellow card given. And it's Neymar is the first one there, or one of the first ones there. And he is sort of almost consoling Adams, like he has his arms around him. They're very, very close in talking. He's got his like hand on the back of Tyler Adams' head. And for the first little bit, it feels like, oh, like maybe he's saying like, ah, yeah, you know, he dove, but you can't react like that or whatever. And the more it went on, the more it felt like he's being very handsy. And I wonder if he is sort of trying to annoy Tyler Adams so that Adams will shove him away and get that second yellow. So it felt friendly, but also threatening at the same time. <laughs> yeah, as well. That's um, the, the the scenario has is flipped to a... Uh a famous case that happened a few years ago between a Celtic right back called Anthony Ralston who it responded to Neymar's diving by just laughing in his face every time he, he did it and there's quite a famous picture where his expression is a friendly one but but verging into terrifying and mocking and, at the same time so maybe Neymar got that from uh, Anthony Ralston. Isn't that just what the Scottish people call smiling? Yes well okay. that that's actually more than I do that, that would be friendly for me. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, Gentlemen, anything (laughs) else on this game? I'll add just how scary PSG are. Even on a day where they're not at their best and not playing to their full ability, they had a rough start and they struggled to build up from the back and they struggled to defend early on. But man, it does not take much for them to get going. They have so much quality. We see it on the first goal. We see it in the build up to the second goal. We see it in a handful of other moments in this game. Mbappe is just faster than anyone on the field. Hakimi is likely faster than anyone on the opposition's defense. It's a hard team to stop. And I I don't see many teams out of really Europe's elite right now being able to stop PSG. I thought I thought when Aldum's position in this game was quite interesting. Like he was, he seemed to be playing in a more advanced role, and we've all been assuming that if he was getting into that team, it would be more as the Liverpool player that we saw. But actually, maybe Poch sees him more as the Netherlands player, um, which you know is quite something, given the given the balance of his midfield that Pochettino sees a potential, uh, not so much an anchor, but someone who can play centrally as an attacking option. I'm not sure that's what you need, Poch. More more attackers, but in this particular game, I thought Wijnaldum did quite well. Uh, I think you all have both done quite well discussing that game. We will be back to discuss more Champions League in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back on with our Champions League review. Liverpool booked their place in the knockout round with a 2-0 win over Atletico Madrid, who had Felipe sent off in somewhat dubious fashion. Atletico now third in the group with four points. Ahead of them is Porto with five after their 1-1 draw at Milan. Graham, let's pause for a moment to talk about that Felipe red card. You mentioned Mm. it previously. Also a little bit confusing, I think, for people watching at home, for people in the stands, and maybe for Felipe as well, who didn't quite seem to understand that he'd been red-carded for the first minute or so that the card was produced. Yeah, there, there was a lot of confusion about this incident. So um, it's Manny, isn't it? He's he's kind of racing away on the, on the counter-attack. Felipe is the Atletico Madrid defender, and he kind of fouls him in that cynical way you frequently see a, a defender do when they are out of position and could be exposed at the back. He, he's basically taking, you know, taking one for the team. That's how they say, you know, he's taking it, taking a yellow card. However, the, the, the replay kind of shows that he stands on Manny's, he kind of, I'm not going to say stamp because it wasn't quite as violent as that, but it, he stands on Manny's heel kind of with the, the front of his, his studs. And then, um, it seemed like the referee got the red card out initially. Then it seemed like he was going to give him a yellow card and then he's calling to Felipe and Felipe is ignoring him and not coming to him. And then all of a sudden the referee just decides he's going to give him the red card. And the confusion came from, there was a lot of people on uh, Twitter saying that he he that Felipe had actually been given the red card for ignoring the referee and the instructions of the official, which is actually in the laws of the game. I didn't know that until last night. Um, but actually, UEFA have I checked earlier. UEFA have clarified that it was not for Felipe's ignorance; it was actually for the challenge. And so, in my book, it was quite a red, uh, a harsh red card, if that was the case. Wait, can you clarify that? So I knew that you can get a straight red if you are like over the top foul and abusive towards an, an official. You can get a red card for just like walking away and ignoring. That I did not know that, but I think it was Adam Crafton, who's a reporter for The mm-hmm. Athletic. He copied and um, he screenshot a section of the laws from FIFA or IFAB, I presume. And yeah, he'd highlighted a section for ignoring the officials. Um, it's It's a red card offense, yeah, which I guess is just a part of the laws that is never used. But... It seemed like the referee had used it in this case, but UEFA have clarified that it actually wasn't that. But it was a confusing incident all round, really. All right, so Joe, no putting fingers in the ears and walking away when the ref is trying to talk to you. Ah, fine, Taylor. (laughs) Such a buzzkill. Golly. I I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) Let's talk about the next group. Uh, Joining Liverpool in the knockout round is Ajax, who picked up a... Uh, 12 of a possible 12 points in their first four games. That's fairly impressive. They got a 3-1 come-from-behind win over 10-man Dortmund, supporting Lisbon thrash Besiktas 4-0. But it's Ajax and Dortmund we're going to spend some time with. Graham, I'm coming to you for the obvious TSS kit watch. If you're giving out letter grades for this game, what are you giving Ajax and what are you giving Dortmund? 
So I actually own this Ajax shirt this season. Um, you so you I'm, say that about every jersey we talk about. <laughs> as if it's some sort of surprise, Graham. Exactly. We just assume that that's the case. <laughs> so what I love about this, it's, it's pretty it's pretty standard for Ajax, other than the retro crest, which is why I, I bought it. So for that reason alone, it's getting an A. And um, the Dortmund we go. third kit is a complete travesty yep. and is getting an F. And Z. Joe, did I, uh, Joe, Joe, did I see you tweeting about the oh, Dortmund Graham, kit I'm so last happy. night? I'm so happy you saw. I felt I, so I almost proud. sent a follow-up tweet. I almost sent a follow-up tweet at you. I was going to at you and say, Graham, are you proud of me? But I was hoping it was going to come up on this show. Thank you so much for noticing, Graham. That made my day. Yeah, no, I've got that, an alert set up <laughs> anytime anyone from TSS talks about kits. <laughs> Wait, what was the tweet? A light, a light, a light flashes on my wall, oh uh, my like gosh. Ghostbusters. That's so good. Taylor, I'm trying to find exactly what I said, but it was something to the effect of, wow, I cannot believe how genuinely... Oh, here we go. I genuinely can't believe how bad Bruce Dorman's third kid is. Good gracious me. It's it's so bad. And I've seen it before. Like I've seen all of these Puma third kits. They're horrible. This is this is the worst one by a mile. This one sells for $6 at Ross, Taylor. <laughs> It's it's the Puma one, right? Where it's yeah. like Dortmund. And, yeah. yeah, okay. It's not great. It's not great. So th- that jersey, a little lackluster. Joe, Ajax, a little lackluster in that first half. Or was it Dortmund being very good? Yes, I think yes. Several of the Ajax players and Eric Ten Hag after the game mentioned how they weren't good in the first half. And that's true. I think we can all agree on that. Far too sloppy with the ball. They didn't take care of it enough. And even when they did have the ball, they weren't especially dangerous at at breaking through Borussia Dortmund's block from Marco Rosa. So there's that side of things. And, And thankfully for Ajax, at least, things did turn around a little bit in the second half. And of course, they get those three goals to get all three points. But for Dorman's side of things, I thought they were excellent in the first half. Even after they lose Mats Hummels to a red card, they were controlling the game, not necessarily with the ball, but with their defensive work. They started out in this high press that we've seen from Marco Rosa in the past, and we've certainly seen it from his Dortmund team this year. They started in a 4-3-3 shape, right? But uh, it shifts into more of a 4-4-2 diamond when they press. So in this game, it was a 4-4-2 with Julian Brandt moving from right center mid up to the 10 spot in the diamond, and then it was Thorgan Hazard dropping from the right wing to right center mid to form the right tip of that diamond. Marco Royce then joined the front line to form a front two, and they were really having some success. It then left Axel Witzel as the six and Jude Bellingham as the left-sided number eight. So you have that diamond in front of the back four with the front two, and that almost completely stymied Ajax's ability to build up. They really struggled to break past that press. And then when Dortmund did drop a little bit deeper and Ajax had some more room to breathe, Dortmund did an excellent job stepping forward out of their 4-5-1 mid-block. They would drop about to the midfield line and they'd have the nine a little bit above that line and they'd have the wingers tucked in a little bit inside and it was a solid, compact shape. But they didn't just sit there and react. Over and over again, they would send pressure out of that mid-block. Like, like really incisive calculated pressure. Julian Brandt was the player I noticed doing it most, but Jude Bellingham did it on the opposite side of central midfield as well. Brandt or Bellingham would step forward and apply pressure to the ball, and it took Ajax by surprise. Dortmund's then, Dortmund then could surround the rest of the passing options so that the ball presser could really really harm the, the ball carrier for Ajax, and Dortmund did this over and over again in the first half. Even after they went down to 10 men, they still had success doing this in a 4-4-1 defensive block. I was just really impressed by what I saw from Dortmund in this first half, and for them, it's kind of a shame that it didn't extend into the second 45. And and that's a different side to Dortmund than we've seen this season. It's actually one of the, the criticisms that has been made under Marco Rosa this season, is that they haven't been able to 
maintain a shape or or um you know kind of show some defensive steals for so for them to to instantly snap into this in this in this match was pretty impressive joe i was going to ask you how how much of everything that you described there so the, the two players that stood out to me for when they went down to 10 men were the two that you mentioned there bellingham and julian brandt how, how much of that is down to the intelligence of those two players because that's something that certainly stands out for me about uh, Brandt, I've always thought of him as quite an intelligent player who can do a number of different things. Bellingham, pretty much everything stands out about yeah. about him. Uh, I think he is absolutely outstanding. So, as as it was, Rosa quite fortunate in that he did have players who could actually respond to that situation. I think so for sure, Graham. Those two players, you can see in how they move when when Dortmund are in possession, but also when they're defending and stepping out of that mid block and when they're pressing it, and they know their rotations, they know what they need to cover in terms of ground defensively. They're they're clearly very very smart players, and I do want to give credit to Marco Rosa. I, I'd be shocked if there wasn't an element of coaching there in terms of drilling those rotations and drilling those defensive movements and the movements in possession as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I was extremely impressed by Jude Bellingham, as I always am. And I was really, really impressed with Julian Brandt as well. He plays a fantastic ball into the box for Bellingham that, that leads to Marco Royce's penalty goal in the 37th minute. That's the goal that puts Borussia Dortmund up in this game and really does put them in the driver's seat, in a sense, even though they're down a man. Just really impressive contributions on both sides of the ball from both of those central midfielders for Dortmund. So we're, we're praising Dortmund quite a little bit, Joe. But it is a Dortmund team that end up losing. Do you feel like a large percentage of that can be put on the red card and Matt Tumbles being sent off? Uh, maybe. This is one of those questions about soccer that I never am fully sure how to answer. When you go down to 10 men, how does that affect the game? In, in some senses, sure, it makes things easier for the other team and, and harder for your team, of course. But at the same time, Ajax were already having trouble breaking through Borussia Dortmund's mid-block. Then you take a player off and encourage Dortmund to sit even deeper and to really concede possession to Ajax, which is a phase of play for Ajax that they haven't been especially dominant in this season. They have been dominant, don't get me wrong, in Europe and in the Eredivisie. But when they have the ball, they don't always have a ton of clear chances coming from their possession setup. So in this game, I don't know if you're Eric Ten Hag, how how thrilled you are to have Dortmund go down a man. Yes, it allows you to really settle the ball and, and maybe calm down a little bit in possession, but in some senses, it, it makes your life harder too. Graham, two questions about that red card for you. First off, the commentators over here referred to it as an agricultural uh, challenge. Can you <laughs> re- remind our listeners, I believe that is a, a Britishism, what that means? <laughs> uh, just a, a rough tackle shall we say i, I actually don't I, I don't really know i don't really know what the root of it is i have it that's maybe a, a a cliche that i should i should research but yeah it's it pretty much means a a rough tackle um to, that could cause some damage to an opposition player an agricultural tackle i think we we've explained it once on the show before and it could have various different meanings i welcome listeners to look it up and decide for themselves but the second question graham i, I thought this was going to be overturned because it's given as a straight red yeah. watching it again Hummels, like the the foot is elevated for sure, but it's sliding through. He kind of wins the ball, if anything. So I would have been like, maybe you can give that as a foul. Maybe it's a yellow card, but I wouldn't have had too too much beef if it had just been given as a foul. So for it to be a straight red and then stand as a straight red, despite VAR, I'm assuming getting in Michael Oliver's ear, that seemed odd to me. Were you surprised by that decision? Yeah, a little bit. I, I I can see why. Same as you, I can see why it was given. You know, Hummels when he goes into the tackle is is quite high. His his, his foot is is elevated, as you put it. 
But it, there's also who, who's who's at the ta- who's the tackle on again? I can't even remember. But whoever the player Anthony. is, kind of, it is Anthony, right? So Anthony kind of also ends up stamping on Hummel's legs as well. So there, there there's kind of a it's kind of um, both players engaging in in an agricultural sense. Um, but yeah, I was surprised this one stood. But it was it was a night of of peculiar refereeing decisions. I think. And since we've mentioned Anthony, let's continue to mention him because he, yes. he real good. He real real good. Graham, oh, is, he's he, good. Is, he, is he our next like big Brazilian? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think you, the this Ajax team obviously everyone is looking for a superstar to come out of it, and that's that's maybe a little bit unfair because they are more than um, you know corny, but they are more of the the sum of their parts. So. It, but he he is he's the guy that I think he's he's the the player who's going to come out of this. He's going to get a fifty million euro move to one of the I know Ajax Ajax are a big club, but one of the super clubs. And it, the way Ten Hag has him playing just reminds me of uh, Sancho for Dortmund in the way that he is a one man attacking hub. He can go on the outside, he can hit the byline. He like, but he also likes to cut inside, get shot away, shots away. I think the thing that is most reminiscent of Sancho is the way that he'll cut inside. He'll kind of shape to shoot you'll think he's going to take on the shot and then he'll kind of play a little reverse ball behind the defense for a for a teammate for an attacker that's what Sancho used to do for Dortmund and Anthony does that a lot for for Ajax so yeah he's 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 really good and, and I think I texted you last night just to rub salt on the wounds I wonder what Ten Hag would do with Sancho at Manchester United if this is what mm. he's doing with uh, Anthony at Ajax I'm not gonna lie as when I went to respond to that I did pause for a moment to think wait has Ten Hag been hired? You did get my hopes up, Graham. So thank you for that. Uh, I, and then, yeah, Anthony definitely got my hopes up in terms of seeing exciting football because he is the assist for the third. He is the assist for the second. I would even give him credit for the equalizer because he plays the ball in that's kind of flicked onto the back post by a Dortmund player and then it's put in. So he is heavily involved in all three goals. And yet, Joe, maybe we need to give some credit to David Klassen because he comes on in the second half and that's when things sort of turn around. Do you have thoughts on why David Klassen sort of changes the face of this game? Well, let's back up maybe just a step here. Klassen comes on for Edson Alvarez, I think largely because Alvarez is already on a yellow card for a challenge on Jude Bellingham in the first half. And so Klassen comes on in the second half, and that pushes Ryan Gravenberg a little bit deeper in midfield. I still generally keep their same shape. But I think it was a logical sub from Ten Hag, not just because of the yellow card for Alvarez, but because they did need a little bit more quality on the ball. I hesitate to use that term because Alvarez is a very skilled player, but he's he's more of a six or a center back hybrid than he is a six or an eight or a guy you really want operating between the lines. So having Davy Clausen on the field in the second half gives Ajax another option between the lines. It gives them more opportunities to progress the ball and have Gravenberg as that single pivot that Ajax so often uses with Daly and tucking in to form the back three with the two center backs, Timber and Martinez. So you've got that back three, then you've got Gravenberg as the single pivot, and then you almost got six players in the front line. And one of those six players could then be Davy Clausen, and then you have Gravenberg who can progress from deeper. So I, I think the personnel swap and the skill sets that were presented in the second half for Ajax made a lot more sense, and, and that does sort of play out given the, the scoreline in the second half. And I'm assuming Joe Ole Gunnar Solskjaer made equally impressive tactical substitutions and changed the face of the game for like, his own part? 
Oh yes, of course, Taylor. I mean, yes. Let's <laughs> let's pivot the IX conversation once more to, to Manchester United, shall we? I mean, I think we probably should. <laughs> we actually should. Yes. <laughs> so one of so one of the uh, one of the differences between and I will take this back to Ajax, but watching I know we're going to talk about the United game later, but they're obviously chasing a late goal, and Ajax were chasing goals in this game with a with a man advantage, but it's quite traditional for a team chasing a goal late on to pile players into the box and have them all on top of each other and Manchester United did that and against Atalanta but one of the impressive things about the way Ajax chased the goal in this game and yes they were playing crosses into the into the box and long balls into the box but that one of the key things that they do is they get bo- the the bodies that are in the box take up separate positions to each other. So even though that ball is going into the box, there's still space for them to do things. And uh, that was uh, obvious for me in the in the in the, the last two goals they scored the the second and the third goal is that. They, it's not just a traditional th- throw everyone into the box. Everyone in the box knows what area of the box they're meant to be in, and so it just creates more problems for the opposition defense. It's a slightly different take on on just putting crosses in there. There's like a determined relentlessness to the way that Ajax seem to attack, and I take your point, Graham, that other teams will just throw everything at it and try to kind of make the other team bend to that pressure. Whereas with Ajax, it reminds me of like the early, like Michael Myers, like the slasher movies, where you're never going to see him run. There's just going to be this relentless determination. And then eventually they're very quick at the very, very end. And then I guess uh, one team is defeated, <laughs> is how I'm going to continue that metaphor. But yeah, like just the way... I was way... wondering how you're going to end that one. <laughs> Awkwardly, I think is the answer. Uh, but just like the way like Anthony sets up that third goal, it is just a stand up, a little shimmy, and then it is a ball in. But there's there's just something different to beating somebody 1v1 to then play that ball in, but play it in in a very calm, like it, it's what, in-swinging from the right-hand side. Uh, and and just the way he puts it on Haller's head, Haller obviously getting uh, pulled quite a little bit there. That might be for the second goal. Yeah, but second goal. It's still just, it's such a pretty sort of like ruthlessness that Ajax seemed to bring to the equation, and it makes them really, really fun to watch. I was just going to say very quickly, and I think Haller is is the ideal striker for that. I, I yep. compared him to Lewandowski and the role he plays for Bayern Munich. It's similar for him and this Ajax team. He brings something slightly different, a little bit of um, incision, and sometimes he isn't so concerned with how he gets the ball into the back of the net, as de- demonstrated by this header where he kind of flicks it with the back of his head. I always think that's an incredible skill when a player when a player does that, it looks a little bit awkward, but it's very hard to pull off. And so he he's the perfect frontman for this Ajax team. I think he's up to seven goals in the Champions League this season, which is quite incredible. Well, he scored in every single game, hasn't he? Uh, yeah, and, and he's and he's had a hat trick in a game, hasn't he? I think. Oh wow! Okay, he's doing okay. He's doing okay. Uh, <laughs> Joe, I know you wanted to say something, but first I wanted to say, Joe, did you want to say something? Oh, I, I would, Taylor. Thank you so much. That's that's yeah, really no kind of you. I wanted to yeah. do one more beat on Anthony here. I pulled up his stats on FB Ref. This is based off of almost 900 minutes in the Champions League and in the Europa League. His numbers are really good. Uh, He's in the 95th percentile among attacking midfielders and wingers in terms of open play, non-penalty, I should say, non-penalty, expected goals plus expected assists. He is in the 95th percentile in terms of progressive carries. He's in the 98th percentile in terms of progressive passes received. He's just a, a hugely impactful player in the attack, getting on the ball, bringing it forward, driving it forward, progressing on the, on the dribble and on the pass, and then actually creating chances for his teammates and, and for himself. This game is is the poster child, really, for that statistical analysis from FB Ref. He is uh, an extremely talented young player. 
So congratulations to Anthony for that. Congratulations to Ajax for booking their place in the knockout round. We will be back to round out our Champions League coverage in just a moment. First, I'm going to go daydream about Anthony playing for Manchester United, and then we'll be back. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and they, all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. During that break, Graham said hurtful things about Manchester United and what would happen if they signed <laughs> Anthony. Uh, so instead, I'm going to go back to Graham to let him talk about a celebration he particularly enjoyed. Hi, Graham. <laughs> oh, I don't even know how I'm going to describe this one. <laughs> but all I'll say is Dusan Tadic's celebration for the equalizer for Ajax against Dortmund was iconic, and I hope it's in the next FIFA. <laughs> you don't even want to try to describe it? Um, let's just say he hurts himself in a delicate part of the body. <laughs> <laughs> the the funniest thing about it was that I think most people would try and kind of hide hide it, uh, but he's he's giving it fist pumps while he is uh, going back to that delicate part of his body to. Uh, how shall we say cup certain things <laughs> i forgot you sent that to the group that that clip you also sent us a, another solid one uh relating to group d uh where real madrid are on top nine points inter just behind on seven sheriff fell to third after they lost to inter which uh graham uh to go back to what i was saying i think has a nominee for pun of the year Oh, that was uh, James Richardson. Where so when Inter score their second goal, James Rich- James Richardson, who does the BT Sport coverage over here, says they think it's Moldova. <laughs> it is now, which oh, yeah. is a fantastic pun, and I can only presume that made Ryan Bailey very jealous that he did not think of it. I I, I think there was uh, like Ryan put a hole through a wall somewhere, thinking realizing what could have been if he had come up with that one on his own. Uh, hopefully not, though. Hopefully not. Bayern Munich sitting top of the table, as they tend to do. Uh, they're also perfect through the first four games. They only have a measly 17 goals for and a whopping two against. So that might not be enough. We'll see if they can sort of figure some things out. Barcelona, six points behind. But I hear Laporte is neg- negotiating for that to just be four points behind. We'll see how that works out. That brings us to Group F, which has Manchester United top ahead of Villarreal on goal difference. Both teams on seven points, Atalanta third with five, which means, Joe, Ole is good now, I'm guessing? Uh, Taylor, 
No. Yeah. I'm so I want so I so badly want to to yeah. tell you something that is going to make you happy. This game I, I think maybe will make you happy in certain parts. The the equalizer, the late equalizer, is a huge opportunity for Manchester United that they capitalize on. And I thought the first half, from a pure soccer standpoint, was extremely fun. Right. This game was end to end a little bit. There was some nice moments from each team. Joseph Ilicic gets that first goal for Atalanta in the twelfth minute, and then Manchester United have the equalizer before half time. And I I just enjoyed the rhythm of this. This first half, the second half quieted down quite a bit. I thought there were still plenty of impressive moments, but man, this first forty-five, especially that that first Manchester United team goal, it was fun to watch. Taylor, let's talk about that goal then for a second because it did feel like a, a as you said, a team goal. Whereas the second is mostly Ronaldo with a with a great hit, but the first one, it's good combination play that felt a bit more like a team that has sort of practiced patterns of play and how to move the ball quickly and kind of make those decisive passes. I thought it was uh, pretty solid from the start of the move to the back of the net. I will. Uh, I agree. It was a nice sequence from Manchester Uh-oh. United. I'll detail it here quickly, and then I'm <laughs> going to fight back slightly on that, Taylor. I'm so sorry. Oh so they're moving the ball. Manchester United moving the ball around in the final third, combining a little bit. Pogba plays it centrally to McSauce. McSauce plays it to Bruno. Bruno to Ronaldo. Ronaldo to Greenwood. Greenwood to Bruno, who made this phenomenal run off the ball. This this blind side. This, this run that really blindsided Atalanta's back line. And Bruno then touches it back to Ronaldo, who finishes. And as we've said, it was a phenomenal team goal and Bruno's run for me completely makes this play it's a run in behind direct and it gets behind Demiral the I believe the center center back for Atalanta it's a great understanding from Bruno and and really from Manchester United of how to beat a man-oriented defensive system we talked about this before we talked about this when we discussed Atalanta last on this show they defend man-to-man in certain situations, right? They have those principles that Gasparini has instilled into this group. They tend to hang tighter to an individual player and an individual opponent defensively than almost any top-flight team does, Leeds being an exception, and I guess San Jose at times being an exception in Major League Soccer. But they're more man-oriented in open play than almost any other team in the world. And it, it makes them exciting to watch, and it presents this element of chaos defensively. But it can also leave them exposed. In Manchester United, credit to them. They do expose that in the way that I think is is best suited to actually expose a team like that is with this direct off ball running. We saw it some in the first uh, in the first meeting between these two teams in this group on match day three, and this is probably the best example of it with that Bruno run. If you're running hard towards goal, the likelihood of your your marker, your, the opponent, the Atalanta player who's marking you, the likelihood that they're going to be able to stick with you and, and still watch the ball and watch you at the same time, it's it's not very likely. The, the odds are pretty low, and, and Bruno does a fantastic fantastic job of evading pressure and really causing problems in this play. The part that I wanted to hit back, Taylor, slightly on is is the idea that this is a defined pattern of play. Maybe it is against a team that does defend like Atalanta defends, but I, I still don't see a ton of coordinated, pre-planned ball movement. I see a lot of really good improvisation. And even on the second goal, we see that more on an individual level rather than a team level. I see this goal, though, as good players doing really good things, like like we saw with PSG, to be honest, but less of, oh, Ole has a plan now. This is a defined pattern that, that they've been training and working on. And, and so I think there still is that distinction. I don't have a lot of confidence in Manchester United when it comes time for them to actually show those sustained patterns of play. Their individuals can get them a long way. They really can. That's why Manchester United are still towards the top of the table in the Premier League. But I I don't see a lot of Ole's influence really shaping this team right now. Graham, two questions for you. First off, why why is Joe so mean? And then second of (laughs) all, why does it have to be this way with Paul Pogba? 
Oh uh, yeah, I think I think Paul Pogba might actually be finished this time. I know we've said that so many. I mean, as a Manchester United player, um, I, I I know we've been here so many times before. It's it's tiring the number of times we've been here before. But yeah, I think the way it's the way it's shaping up now, it feels it does feel like just looking at his body language. Um, even if it's subconsciously, he's he's just he's not engaged with the task at all. He's taking so many touches of the ball in in almost every game he plays. It was certainly um, a problem against uh, he didn't play against Liverpool, did he? But when he came when he came on on, on off the bench at halftime, it was a problem. When he was on um, on the pitch, it was a problem. In this match, yeah, I, I, if I were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and at this point he is just purely picking teams to save his job. Which is why I would say he's right at the moment not to play Jaden Sancho, even though it is ridiculous that he's chased that player for two years and not he doesn't have a plan for him. But having a plan for him is going to take some time to devise, and Solskjaer doesn't have time right now. And by the same to- token, I think it's similar with Paul Pogba. I don't know where he fits into this team at the moment, but Solskjaer doesn't really have time to to work it out. So I would be putting players in that you know are going to do a job, and Pogba at the moment is just not one of them. Graham, would it make it better to know that uh, Paul Pogba did play against Liverpool and came on as a, a halftime substitute and then got a red card immediately? Does that make <laughs> you think he's doing better? Um, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well then, Graham, while we're sticking with the things that make me sad about the club that I support, let's talk about Harry Maguire for a second, because that's another one who felt like do he Do you was really want to? to... <laughs> uh, well, I think, okay, here's what I would like to do. I would like to have a conversation about why... If you have an idea about why things seem to sort of be intermittently working and how it is that like parts can work, but then other parts don't. And maybe the larger question I would like to ask both of you is uh, this is coming, I would acknowledge, purely from a like fandom perspective. But we we know that after the Liverpool game, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer given three games to turn things around. There's the win over Spurs, who then fired their manager. So make of that what you will. Then there's this draw. It's a, it's a good fight back, but I would say it's not necessarily the most, I don't know, reassuring results. So then there's Man City on the weekend. What do you all think like needs to happen for him to sort of solidify that position? Is it a draw versus City? Is it a win versus City? What do you think are the steps that need to kind of be taken or the things that need to occur for Ole to continue to be there? Well, I think he needs to avoid another heavy defeat. Just reading the the reports in the British press, and I don't really have any inside information at all, but it, it feels like United still aren't really strongly considering alternatives. They they had a look at Conte, it, it seems like, but obviously now he's gone to Spurs, so that option has gone. And so it would really take another mauling like the one against Liverpool. If that happens, I think he is in trouble and he probably will be sacked, even if Manchester United don't have a plan. But I think if, I think even if it's a narrow defeat, um, Solskjaer still keeps his, his job. But I, I do think the big, the big problem from this match for me talking about the derby is the fact that Varane comes out injured because just on an individual basis, Varane makes, makes such a difference to this team, in my opinion. I don't think it's a coincidence that he comes back for the Spurs game and they keep a clean sheet. Obviously, there was a tactical shift there to a back three as well. Um, Varane comes out of this game and Maguire and Eric Bailly. I actually think Eric Bailly actually had a, had a decent game on an individual basis. I think he's certainly playing um, on this, on the evidence of this match. He's playing better than Maguire, but the, the relationship between Maguire, Maguire and Bailly wasn't there either. The second Atalanta goal, the Zapata goal, it's bizarre because 
United start this match in a back three with Varane in, 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 in the back line there. Then he comes out for Greenwood, so Solskjaer switches it to a back four. But if you look at Maguire's positioning for that second Atalanta goal, it's almost like he's still playing in a back three, positionally. The, the, the area of the pitch that he's holding would be the area of the pitch if he was in that back three. So it's it's just mental sharpness for me is the biggest issue for Maguire. He is limited physically. I always think his lack of pace is a problem and that's one of the reasons I would favour Eric Bailly against City is that if he gets turned, you feel like he... I mean, this is the this is the the conundrum with Bailly. You feel like he's either going to give away a penalty when he gets turned, or he's going to completely clean the ball out, and and there's not he's going to mop up the danger. But he does get there, is the point I'm making. He has the pace to get there, but it's it's mental sharpness with Maguire. He's making uh, poor decisions on the ball as a thing in almost every match he's played. That was evident in the Spurs match as well. The number of misplaced passes he was making. So. I don't really have an explanation for why he's playing this poorly other than maybe just mentally he hasn't been allowed to reset and kind of relax himself a little bit and he's going into every match in a little bit of a mental frenzy, um, which is how it looks to me. But other than that, um, yeah, it is a bit of a mystery. He's playing so poorly. I I wouldn't, if if there's an option to not play him in the derby, I would be taking that that opportunity as Solskjaer. I'd, I'd be playing Baye and Lindelof if Lindelof is fit because obviously he's got a knock as well at the moment. So that that's how bad he's playing. A buddy of mine agrees with you. He was messaging to say that the thing that was most frustrating about the Varane injury is that it felt like that made it less likely that Harry Harry Maguire could could sit or could get a rest or whatever he might need. So yeah, we'll we'll see if Solskjaer really rolls those dice and goes with Lindelof and Bailly, or if it is Lindelof and Maguire, or Lindelof and or Bailly and it's also, uh, Maguire. It's so. Sorry, the, the defendant for the, the first goal as well, uh, Taylor, I don't know if you noticed, is, is, is brainless. Where all four Manchester City defenders race back all the way to pretty much, you know, the six, the six yard box without recognizing the space they've just opened up in front of them. And Illichitz just drifts into it to, to get on the end of that pass and finishes. And a more intelligent, positionally, I mean, intelligent, um, central midfielder might have covered that. But, uh, as we have covered a number of times on this podcast, Manchester United don't have one of those. So it's, it just feels like they lack intelligence at the base of their midfield and in their defensive line when Varane's not there. I think Varane makes a big difference in that regard. So yeah, I'd be a little bit worried ahead of the, the derby from a defensive point of view. I think it's adorable that you think I should only be a little bit worried. Um, I would also <laughs> add, I know David De Gea gets a lot of the blame for that opener. It hits off his hands and goes in. It is a little wet on the field. But I would say, Graham, to your point, that when you have the defense collapsing and then somebody kind of panic stepping at the last minute, that can lead to unpredictability in the way, like like the trajectory of the ball. But it also means it's hard for the goalkeeper to see it. And, and I think that's kind of what happens here is De Gea sees it late and thinks it's going one way. It has a little bit of a weird spin on it, and I think that's why he doesn't control it cleanly. Still should have done better, but I think to your point, there is something to be said for the way Manchester United sort of collapse and then try to step from there that creates openings for the opposition to score. It keeps feeling to me like almost a cartoon dam where like the little holes keep opening and you've got a person just like plugging them with their fingers that like one game it'll be like, okay, we've got the center back situation sorted, but now there needs to be a little bit more work in the attack. Oh, no, never mind. The center back situation is now leaking again. I don't really know how you correct it short of maybe maybe a 4-0 win over Man City and then things are good. Joe, that feels realistic, right? Well, I mean, I think you should just plug the holes, Taylor. 
I mean, right. let's not overcomplicate this. Grab some, grab some cork or whatever you use to plug holes, and just, just go for it, man. <laughs> uh, you're, you're plugging it down with cork. I, we're not going to touch on. We're not going to touch on that. <laughs> it's, it's, if you want that entire dam to collapse, Joe, I think go for that one for sure. What we will mention, or at least I will ask about Graham before we uh, we finish reviewing this one. I think we can all agree that the most surprising thing about this game was the fact that it featured both Jaden Sancho and Donnie Van Debate, yes. <laughs> uh, who it turns out is still alive. Graham, were you shocked to find that out? Well, I, I was shocked, but it was quite funny how Solskjaer threw them, threw them on with about three minutes to go, like the 86th or 87th minute. Change the game, guys. You've got three minutes. But the thing is, I actually felt... Uh, Donny van der Beek, that's the lesser spotted wild Donny van der Beek, not the one who <laughs> has sat on the bench for the last two years. He, I thought he actually did quite well. I thought he actually made a difference. Hell must be freezing over. Um, so we'll see if that actually gets him a further opportunity or if that's him on the bench for the next six months. I, I am now obsessed with the idea of Don, Donny van der Beek on, on the pitch is... Uh, the Donny Van de Beek in the wild, and then him on the bench is domesticated Donny Van de Beek. <laughs> that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, anything else from this game, gentlemen? I guess we should probably talk about the contribution of Ronaldo, given that oh, yeah, I probably. can't really figure out whether he is um, saving this team or ruining this team. It's it's kind of the discussion that overshadows all discussions with Manchester United. I suppose besides Solskjaer, it's kind of the dominating discussion around this team at the moment. It's weird how that that is the dominating discussion around him and not, say, Lionel Messi. Because I feel like it's a similar conversation we could have about this superstar player who does a lot of things well, but also creates problems and headaches for his manager. That feels pretty significant for both of them. But in this game, it is Ronaldo yeah. uh, getting the opener and then that the equalizer very late in, at the end. And I will toot my own horn to say that I believe I messaged you all to say Manchester United post 80th you minute did. equalizer, yeah. and here we are. So I think in some ways, yeah, he, there are problems presented, but in other ways, he is solving some of those problems himself. Yeah, I guess the I guess the difference between him and Messi right now is that Messi actually isn't really putting up the, the numbers in the way he, that he normally does, whereas Ronaldo... So uh, he has... Um, He's one. I know these. I know these stats. Those sort of facts are always a bit funny because without Ronaldo, United would have another striker who would likely score goals. But Ronaldo has won five points from United in the Champions League this season. Without his goals, they would have two points from four games, and they have seven points and are sitting top of the group. So that's what I mean. Is that would this team be better without him? Because it goes against the grain as a as a football fan and a football you know pundit writer blogger whatever to suggest that taking a player out who's scored so many important goals would actually make a team better but that's the weird thing about him at the moment and, and to provide the counter argument to that i don't really know what i believe there have been games that ronaldo's been huge and i think this is one of them not just with his goal scoring but the fact that he was dropping into midfield and providing an extra number there at least a few times in this game he did it more than i'd seen from him in in past games the counter argument though is because of Ronaldo's lack of movement and, and generally his lack of intensity in the press, that you lose a lot and, and you you don't get as much from that nine in, in helping your team control midfield and you have to accommodate Ronaldo. So maybe there's there's a reality in which Manchester United didn't even need these goals to come back, right? Maybe different personnel and a different structure to this team without Ronaldo in the lineup would strengthen them in certain ways and would have equipped them to score in, 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 goals in other ways and deny goals in other ways. So there is that argument and we will never know, right? It's the alternate reality. We'll never actually know for sure. But I, I do see both sides of that argument as being pretty strong. 
I think I think we've got. I know we've only got 120 minutes of evidence of this, but I think Cavani being in that, that United team alongside Ronaldo makes a big difference. Certainly in the Spurs game, that seemed to be the case. And Taylor, the fact that Cavani doesn't start this match is that a sign to you that he's he's going to start the derby, isn't he? My my guess would have been that they would have gone for the same formation as against Spurs, and they would have tried to deploy it against Man City with. The injury to Varane, that becomes a little bit harder. I don't know if I would love uh, three center backs of Maguire, Lindelof, and Bailly, but maybe that's the case. What, but about, I think... what, about, what about Shaw as the left center back and Talese as the left wing back? I'd be fine with that. I, I think because it does get Cavani and Ronaldo as that front two, and I think they seem to combine well, they seem to play off each other well, but also I think that does instill a little bit of fear in defenders, and I think it keeps some defenders a little bit more honest who might otherwise be drifting forward or trying to get involved in the attack, if you can keep some numbers back for Man City and maybe make them get a little bit stretched or a little bit more open, I think that only uh, is a benefit to Manchester United. So I would assume he starts in, in that in that game, in that derby, uh, alongside Ronaldo, but that does then mean you're leaving out a lot of other options if you have to go that sort of formation route. So unless they're going to go with a... 4-2-4 against Man City, which I think would maybe not be the smartest idea. Oh, no. Regardless, there's going to be some people left out uh, in that game. Yeah, don't go with 4-2-4 against nope. Man City. <laughs> See, especially after seeing what that what happened against Liverpool. Stay away from that, Ollie. <laughs> Fine. Fine. All right, rounding it out. Salzburg still on top with seven points in Group G, despite losing 2-1 to a resurgent Wolfsburg, proving the old adage, if you need a win, fire Mark Van Bommel. Lille got a big 2-1 win on the road at Sevilla and remained in second place ahead of Wolfsburg on the narrowest of goal difference margins. And finally, there's Group H. I know that this will come as a big, big surprise, but in group in a group that features Juventus, Chelsea, Zenit, and Malmo, it's Juventus and Chelsea on top. Shocker. Juve now has 12 points after their win over Zenit. Chelsea are in second with nine. Pulisic kind enough not to add insult to injury in Chelsea's defeat of Malmo, uh, choosing to nobly miss wide instead of scoring the goal. Yeah. Joe... <laughs> Uh, did that physically hurt you when he failed to score? Oh, no, Taylor. Waki had a great tweet about this. You know, that it, Christian Pulisic is just saving his goals for moments that matter. That's all it is, okay. you know? He's okay, just playing good. 4D chess out here. It's just fin- finite resources. He doesn't want to for use his, them all at once. Exactly. For his, goal, for his goals on loan at North City ne- uh, for the second half of next season. Graham, don't project your Scottish insecurities <laughs> on me. Don't do it. <laughs> thank, thank you, Joe, because I was just going to sit here sad. <laughs> so, on that note, thanks, Graham, for being so wonderful today. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Joe Lowry, thank you for actually being wonderful. You've both been wonderful. But Joe, <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for giving me uh, positive signs as we await the U.S. roster release. You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for listening. We will be back uh, to talk about that roster later on today and then allocation disorder tomorrow. But for now, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. 